this is what uh, it says in Exodus 32, 30 through 35. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. People of Israel have left Egypt. The people of Israel have wandered through the wilderness. The people of Israel have come to Mount Sinai where they have countered the presence of God on the mountain uh, in smoke and fire and lightning. The people have seen God as Moses has brought down a copy of the covenant on the stone tablets. And then last week what we discovered was the people... While Moses was up on the mountain receiving the covenant, made for themselves an idol of gold that looks like a cow, that they might worship that cow. And they held a worship festival for that golden cow, which involved worship, it involved offerings, it involved a party. And that party involved many things that would be positive and many things that happen at parties. You wake up in the next morning and say, what were we thinking? And now, verses 30 through 35, we have sort of the conclusion of what happened. Moses had come down from the mountain, found what they were doing, had uh, called the people to, to correction. Most had, not all had. The Levites then went through the camp, and all those who weren't repenting of their sin, they actually killed. 3,000 people died. And now we get the conclusion of that story. Moses is telling the people, I will go back up the mountain and see what I can do with God in regard to this great sin where you have abandoned him and worshiped idols while God was right there on the mountain next to you. And what Moses wants the people to understand and what we're going to discover in this passage today is that sin, rebellion against God, rejection of God, ruins everything. The title of the message today is depressing. It's ruined. It's sort of depressing. It gets fixed at the end. I don't want you to walk away. Don't leave in the middle because you'll miss the, the point. Ruined. We can't undo it. We can't fix it. And it's all our fault. Look at verse 30 of Exodus 32. Moses said to his people the next day. So all this has gone on. They've worshipped an idol. They've repented. Some people had to die because they wouldn't repent. And the next day Moses said, You have sinned a great sin. And now I'm going to go up to the Lord and I'm going to try and make atonement for you. Look at that last phrase. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The biggest perhaps in the Bible. Perhaps. I'll let you know how it works out. I mean, this is a big deal. Moses isn't sure what's going to come of it. But he's saying, you have to understand how big a deal it is that you have rejected God. Everything is ruined because you walked away from God. Everything is ruined because you walked away from God, he said to the people of Israel. Think of it this way. There's such a thing, we call it a tethered 
diver, a diver that is tethered. And when a tethered diver is this, you might dive into the ocean or a lake or your bathtub, and you would you wear those oxygen tanks. I think they have oxygen in them. And you can swim around and you can do underwater diving and whatever. But another kind of diver has a long hose that goes up to the boat. And these guys, what the thing they can do is they can stay underwater without having to replace their tanks all the time. See these kind of divers, maybe in industrial applications, they need to go down, they need to work on something and they need to do it for a long period of time. And so they've got an air hose that goes up to a boat and they don't have to keep swapping their tanks out. So they're tethered. So on the one hand, being a tethered diver means you have a constant supply of air. And I don't know if you know how this works, but underwater, that's a good thing. We won't get into the science of it. I'll just have to trust me on that. But the downside of being a tethered diver is that that hose will only go so far. At a certain point, you run out of hose. At a certain point, the hose becomes restrictive. You can go some places, but you can't go other places. So you have two options. You can just stay where the hose allows you to go, or you can cut the hose off and go wherever you want. The hose provides life-giving oxygen, but it also restricts where you can go. And Moses is saying to the people of Israel, you just cut your hose. You just, you just cut it off, you went where you wanted, and you have no idea you're drowning. You decided God's ways were stick-in-the-mud ways. He is a real uh, loser. He's too restrictive. He doesn't want you to have any fun. He doesn't understand the situation you're in. So I'm going to cut my hose and handle my own business. And Moses is going, that was real smart. You just cut off your source of life. I'm going to go up and talk to him and see if this isn't as bad as I think it is. Moses says, you have cut your air hose to gain freedom. And the result is, you're now dead. The problem that people have, the people of Israel has, and frankly, every person who has ever lived has, the problem is all of us have told God he doesn't know what he's doing. We know better and we're going to go our own way. The problem is not that God has set up life to be too restrictive. The problem is we don't want to be close enough to God that we receive his life-giving oxygen. We always tend to think God is the problem in our relationship with God. He's too restrictive. He's too strict. He's too mean. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. So therefore, the problem obviously is him. The first step of understanding the degree of our rebellion is to understand he's not the problem. The problem is we have rejected God's ways. The problem is not that God has rejected us. The issue is our behavior. The issue is our disbelief. The issue is that we have rejected God because we want to be God. All is ruined because we walked away. God did not walk away from us, but it gets worse. There's something worse than being a sinner. You're thinking, are you thinking? I hope you are. I don't know. What could possibly be worse than being a sinner? What's worse than being a sinner is being a re religious sinner. So the people of Israel were sinners, but they were religious. In fact, if you look closely at the story of them worshiping the calf, they actually, what they were doing is they were building the calf and they said, this is God who delivered us from Egypt. So what they said is we want to worship God, but we want to worship him close by. So we're going to make something and worship the something and call it God. So if you would have asked them, do you worship the God of Israel? They said, they would have said what? Of course we do. 
We love God. He saved us from Egypt. Where is he? He's on that pedestal over there. You see him there? He's that cow. And so you would have said to them, you need to have a relationship with God in order to be free of your sin, in order to have uh, freedom uh, and life in God. They would have said what? We do have a relationship with God. There he is. Want to go say hi? So there's something worse than being a rebellious sinner. It's being a religious rebellious sinner because a religious rebellious sinner says, I can do all the things I want to do and at the same time say, I love the Lord and he's totally cool with it. It's one thing for me to say, God's a lame I reject him. It's another one to say, God is awesome and I can do whatever I want. And the way that Moses is saying here, perhaps I can come make atonement for your sin. I'm not sure if I can here, as a matter of fact, is what he's saying. But all is ruined because of our sin. All is ruined because we sin and we think God's okay with what we're doing. Because we can make God into any image we want. Let me end this section with this. And you're going, thank goodness. But let me just remind you, it's going to get worse before it gets better. All sin is personal. Every time we rebel against God and his ways, it is a sin against God and God alone. When David was confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he said this, God against you alone have I sinned. All sin is personal and all sin is personally against God himself. There isn't a vanilla sin that God's not offended by and there isn't a sin that doesn't involve God's holiness. All rebellion is against God himself and all sin of mine and yours is individually caused by us. When we rebel against God, I don't know how to say this nicely. It's our fault the whole way. It's not God's fault in any way. All of our sin is against God and all of our sin is our fault. And you say, well, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. And you're right, I don't. I wouldn't make light of that. Nonetheless, all sin is against God personally and all sin is caused by us. It's not caused by God. It's not caused by our circumstances. It's not caused by the people in our life. It's caused by us. If you were in in the Garden of Eden and you were Adam or you were Eve, you would have taken the prime rib too. If you don't know what I mean, I've always said the forbidden fruit was prime rib. I mean, who would take an apple? It's a tree of prime rib. I mean, you're going to take that, aren't you? Of course you are. I wouldn't even do it for the wisdom. I'd take, do it for the prime rib. If you were in the Garden of Eden and you were the Adam or you were the Eve, you would have taken it too. You wouldn't make, I, maybe we should even say it this way, you wouldn't have lasted as long. If you were Adam, God said, well, I'm going to make you, where are you at? You've already eaten the tree, haven't even made Eve yet. All sin is personal. All sin is against God. All sin is caused by us. We are ruined because we walked away. God did not walk away. All right, let's look at verses 31 and 32 and 33. 
what we like to think about this, back to that air hose illustration, is what we do is, okay, I cut off the air hose, so what I need to do is I need to just fix that air hose, right? I just need to connect that air hose back together. But see, we're not smart enough with our sin. We didn't disconnect it with the quick disconnect. What we did is we hacked up the hose with a dull knife. And so now there's no fixing it. It's ruined. It's gone. There's no way for us to fix it. There is no repair. The air hose that connected this to God is completely destroyed, ruined. First thing we said is because we walked away, verses 31 through 32, everything is ruined because the damage is permanent. The damage of our rebellion is permanent. Back in 2012, there was a news story about this mural of Jesus in this really old church somewhere over in Europe. I can't remember what church it was, but there's this mural. It's a 19th century mural of Jesus, and it was considered a piece of classic art. It was a beautiful uh, mural. If you Google it, you can maybe see what it looked like beforehand. But there was this dear old lady. She worked in the church, and what she decided was to sort of restore it. I should have had pictures, but you would laugh at it so hard you wouldn't come back to the message. So you can Google it. She fixed it. But she's not exactly what we'd call an artist. So she fixed it. And when she was done with this classic painting of Christ, it looked like something your first grader would bring home from school. Completely ruined it. It doesn't even look like Jesus anymore. It doesn't even, frankly, look like a person in some ways. And this was a classic a painting on fresco done by a, a classic painter, and it was completely ruined. Now that she had tried fixing it, it was beyond repair. It was completely ruined. In fact, it was a hideous disaster. And this is the situation with our rebellion against God. The damage we have caused is permanent. Read again with me, verses 31 through 33 of Exodus 32. So Moses returned to the Lord. He said, Oh, my land, you're not going to believe this. God says, try me. Okay, I'm interpreting myself. Alas, they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, wipe me out of your book. And God says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Read, look at that last sentence. God says this. It's his words. Take it for what it is. Whoever has sinned against me, what? I will blot out of my book. There's not a way for me to make that okay. There's not a way for me to spin that to say, well, he's got two books. Maybe he's got half a dozen books. He's got the one book that he blots out for people who do the really bad stuff. And then he's got another set of books for people who just like cheat on their taxes. And some of you are like, that's a bad thing. Okay. Then you got another set of books for people who watch reality TV and I'm messing with you. God here is saying, here's the price. All who sin against me, blotted out of my book. Moses understood the ruination sin caused. He said, listen, God, if you won't forgive them, then do to, to me what you're going to do to them. Blot me out of your book. I want you to put on me the price that they owe. They owe uh, being blotted out of the book. So God, what I want you to do is do that to me instead of them. And what does God say? Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. The person who has the sin must be blotted out. He doesn't spell it out here, but let me explain it. Moses, you've got your own sin to be blotted for. You don't get to also do theirs. 
Another way of saying, Moses, you're a lousy redeemer. You're really good at plagues, maybe. You're good at carrying a staff that can turn into snakes. You're good at walking through the Red Sea on dry ground. What you're lousy at is paying for other people's sin. Stay in your lane, Moses. Moses fails miserably. Moses goes up on the mountain and says, perhaps I can bring atonement. And what was, what's the answer to the perhaps? Nope. Moses can't atone. He's a lousy atoner. Sounds like something you put in a copier. He's a lousy mediator. He's a lousy redeemer. What he has so far done is just confirm for God that he needs to blot them out of his book. What is this book he's talking about? Back in ancient times, cities would have these books that were in roles and had all the people who were in that city or that region. What you do is when you were born, they'd write your name in there, Bob Smith. And then you would stay in there until you moved away. And when you moved away, they'd scratch your name out. Or if they had a funeral, scratch your name out. So the book was always getting longer. Usually there were scrolls. And there was always sort of a window of time where it's all the living people in that region. And then they would keep moving it as years go by. The dead people would get scratched out and new people would be written down. And what uh, Moses is saying is, God, you have a book with all of your people who are alive. And God is saying, everybody is in that book till I blot you out when you sin. God is saying here, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out. Moses fails as a mediator because he has his own sin to deal with. There is only one person who has the ability to receive on himself the sin of others, and that person is Jesus. And you say, well, how does that work? How, do, how exactly does, does that work? So Jesus doesn't have to pay for his own sin because he has none. The Bible is quite clear. He committed no sin. He was holy and righteous before God because he is God. And what God says is, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So what Jesus does, according to the Bible, it says he receives on himself our sin. The way it says it is this. He who knew no sin, who's that? Okay, I'll give you an easy one, folks. He who knew no sin, okay, stay with me, good, became sin. So he became sin that we might receive the righteousness of God. So it's a a transaction two ways. He receives our sin. We receive his righteousness. Now, what happens to all who have sinned or who, in his case, has become sin? He has to be blotted out of the book. Yes? That's, if I'm reading Exodus right, so he is. What do we call that? The cross. So God blots him out of the book. He takes all of our sin that ought to remove us from the book. He receives that on himself and then he is crucified, so God blots him out of his book. And that's sad. And that's worrisome. And for two and a half days or so, it was worrisome. And then the grave opened, and we said, oh, he's that awesome. He can't stay dead. He is God. So he pays the full penalty for us being blotted out of the book. By being blotted out of the book himself, he raises us from the dead and writes his name back in it. And says, I'm back. That's a good redeemer. Moses, lame. Moses, you're going to die for my sin with your own sin and you have no ability to raise from the dead. Um, no, thank you. I'll go with the guy who has no sin and cannot stay dead. 
That is a better redeemer. But we need to understand when we look at the cross, we look at the permanent ruination our sin caused. Jesus died an eternal death on the cross for us. He took on himself what it would have taken us forever to pay. Our sin was permanent. The only way it could be permanently fixed was for God himself to pay for it. That's a good redeemer. That means our sin was really bad. We are ruined because, our dam- our, because the damage we caused is permanent. We try to patch things up, and guess what? It gets worse. We try to fix our life the way that old woman in that church tried to fix that painting, and then it looks like a three-year-old tried to save us. And at some point in our life, hopefully sooner rather than later, we get to the point where we say, God, it turns out I'm not good at saving myself. Will you take care of this for me? Will you just pay my sin? Will you just redeem me? All sin is ruinous. Lying is ruinous. Destroys your life. Destroys your relationships. Destroys your heart. Envy will destroy your life. Despite the fact that our entire culture is based on the pursuit of what we want based on envy. Envy will destroy you. Envy in our hearts creates the inability to just be cool with today. Wouldn't it be great just to say today is good enough? Envy says it is not possible for today to be good enough. Lust will destroy us. It will destroy our relationships. It will destroy our hearts. Pride will destroy our relationship with God because we think we know better than Him. Selfishness will destroy our hearts because we decide in selfishness that the end of all of my work is me. The end of all of my pursuit is the satisfaction of whatever I want today. Unthankfulness will ruin our hearts and minds. There is no kind of good sin. All sin ruins us. We don't do ourselves any favors when we say, well, I'm not a great husband, but I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a great friend, but I've never murdered anybody. I'm not a great boss, but I'm not Hitler. All sin is ruinous. There's no such thing as a white lie. There's only deadly lies. All sin will destroy us. All sin causes permanent damage. Now, some of you are thinking this, just to answer this question. Some of you are thinking, no, I've done some stuff. It didn't cause any problems. Anybody done some bad stuff and yet it was cool? Everything worked out? Okay, so let's go back to lying. <laughs> just touch on that one again. You raise your finger on your lap. Just a little finger up. You're raising your husband's hand up. I see how that. Okay. What about the fact that I sin? Sometimes it works out. Nothing bad happens. Yeah, you might want to say, thank you, God. You might want to say that, thank you, God, that every time we blow it, he doesn't unleash what ought to be. We might want to say, God, thank you for your grace again today that I don't have to uh, atone for my sin. It goes on the cross. All sin is ruinous, and the damage is permanent. There is only one Redeemer. It's a Redeemer who hasn't sinned, and the only Redeemer is the one who can fix permanent damage permanently. But we will always have reminders of it. And this will bother you a little bit, but just deal with it. Some of us are wondering, when we get to heaven, will we remember our sin? And you're hoping when you get to heaven, you won't remember all the naughty things you did. 
I'm hoping that too. Unfortunately, what, how would Jesus explain the holes in his hands if we can't remember what we were saved from? There's holes in his hands. What are those from, Jesus? Oh, yeah, um, he's working on a project. The, problem, the reason we want to pretend like all of our memory is wiped, we've never experienced what it's like to live in the grace of Christ holy, completely resting in the grace of Christ, where we can say, that's what happened, Jesus paid for it, so everything is okay. In that moment, we're going to experience grace and love in a way we never have before. All sin has permanent damage, and we'll see and experience the grace of Christ even in glory when we recognize what he saved us from. All right, let's get to the end so you don't leave crying. That's still going to get a little worse. Um, some of us, what we say is, you know what, I do sin, okay, I've got some bad things, and, but you know, I wasn't even totally involved, and my stuff wasn't as bad as uh, some of the others. Look at Exodus 32, uh, 34, and 35. Now, God is talking to Moses again, lead the people to a place about which I have spoken to you, Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, on the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. For the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one Aaron made. Think about it this way. A group of guys go in to rob a bank. Four guys got a car. So three guys go in. They rob the bank. Go in with their guns, uh, and they rob the bank. One guy sits out in the car, the wheel man, right, the getaway driver. So they go in. Who knows what happens on the inside? And sometimes these things go really bad. Maybe some people get assaulted. Maybe even they kill somebody in the... Uh, effort to rob a bank. They come running out with their bags of cash. They jump in the car and they drive away and they get pulled over later. And they all get arrested. So the three guys who robbed the bank, they get arrested for murder and they get arrested for uh, participating in a murder, participating in, bank, in a bank robbery, a robbery. And the driver, of course, he gets a ticket for speeding, right? Because he, he ran a red light. How does that work? Anybody know how that works? No, the getaway driver gets the same stuff. And the getaway driver, well, I didn't go in the bank. I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't take any money. Well, sorry, the getaway driver will be convicted of, of a crime even as though he had gotten out of the car and got in and, and robbed the bank. And look at what happens here in this story. A plague came on the people who remain. Why am I bringing this up? Because already we've seen people uh, pay some penalty for what was going on. So let's remind us ourselves of the story. People were having a party celebrating the cow. Party was going as parties go. There's some corners of that party. They're getting a little rowdy. Moses comes down, and a whole bunch of the people go, oh, man, what were we thinking? Oh, uh, what were we doing? So they immediately, they're like, that was stupid. And they, they walk away. But then Moses calls the Levites to him, and he says, we need to now go throughout the camp because some of the people, they don't even care that I'm back. They want to keep the party going. And the, the Levites went through, and it says they killed 3,000 people who were unrepentant. 3,000 people who were still going crazy. So there's three people here, three kinds of people participating in this worship of the, of the idol. You got some people who are all in. Like, that idol is my God, and I will worship him come hell or high water. Most of us can come down with God himself. That idol is my God now. You got another group of people who are worshiping the idol, but as soon as they were confronted with the truth, they're like, oh, wait, I'm out. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? There's another group of people that goes unmentioned because they did nothing, and that's the problem. The party was going on, and they said, that's wrong. So what did they do? 
They went back to their tent. They chilled. That's not my thing. And so these folks were passively involved because what, what should they have done when this thing was going off the chain? They should have stopped it. They should have said, no, we are a part of God's people and God's people don't worship that. God's people worship God alone. But nobody did that. Nobody intervened until Moses showed up. So when this plague comes on the people, the plague that is left, the people who are left at this point are the people who repented and the people who were passive. Let me put it this way. Sin is ruinous because there is no escape. There are no passive participants in sin. Sin is we're all in. Everyone has sinned. Every sin is sin. And even uh, passively saying, that's not my thing, but I'm not going to get in the way of it, is also rebellious. The plague comes even after the Levites clean house because God was saying, you have put up with sin in your midst. You've been okay with sin, and so therefore there is even judgment for that. We are ruined because there is no escape. A couple of verses in the New Testament, we're going to close with this. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. I think a verse will be up on the screen for you. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what's the point here? He's saying, when we live according to the appetites of our flesh, that is, that part of us that is not yet whole, when we live according to the appetites of our own desire, it leads us into death. What he is saying as believers is we ought not to live according to the appetites of our flesh, Instead, we should live by the Spirit. Now, this is a really interesting contrast we don't have time to get into right now, but let me just do it briefly. He is not saying, instead of living bad, live good. He is saying, instead of pursuing your own appetites, live by the Spirit. The reason that's an important distinction, he is not saying, stop being bad so that you can be good. What he is saying is, Because you have the Spirit, God has made you good. God has made you holy. Therefore, live according to who you are in Christ. Stop living according to the old nature, which God has done away with. Instead, live according to the Spirit who indwells every believer. What he is saying, with the Spirit in us, wouldn't we want to put to death those appetites that will lead us away from God? And he would say, well, yeah, I do, but sometimes I don't want to. The call here is for us, even as believers, to say, I want to live as though I am dead to the appetites of my flesh. The appetites to uh, make myself more amazing than I am through lying. The appetites to pursue my own sufficiency through greed. The appetites to try and find meaningfulness and significance in relationships, even if it's not my spouse. These are all appetites that lead me away from God. And, And what the Bible is saying, why don't we live by the Spirit, meaning allowing God Himself to fulfill our desires. All sin will lead to destruction and death. If we want to live a life of life, we live by the Spirit. Okay, look at James chapter 4, verse 17. James chapter 4, verse 17. This is what the Bible says, James 4, 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do 
and fails to do it, for him it is sin. All right, so this is a new kind of thing. This is a flavor we're saying here of disobedience, which is kind of like those Israelites who just stayed in their tents during the idol worshiping party. Because sometimes we say, well, you know, I'm not that bad off because frankly, I don't do anything bad. Or when I do something bad, it's pretty G-rated. But what we're learning from James here, he says, it is also a sin to know when God has called us to do something rightly and we, refu- and we refrain from doing it. It's also a sin when God calls us into obedience and we say, well, I'm just going to pass on that. I forget the reference, but it's in either First or Second Peter. You're like, well, where is it? I don't know. You find it. You Google it. The Bible says this. This is a Mother's Day gift for you uh, husbands. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. The women are. I see you. It gets worse, guys. Or so that your prayers aren't hindered. No big deal. For God to answer your prayers, husbands, simply understand your wife. I was waiting for it. I was like, I'm going to feel like a loser up here. I guess you guys all got it. Okay, yeah, my prayers are all answered. I got See, how is that possible? And I'm not saying anything about the ladies here. This is just relational difficulty. We just uh, speak different languages often. And what we're saying here, the Bible is calling us into obedience. You say, well, I'd understand my spouse, because this really can go both ways. I would understand my spouse a lot better if they would just simply think and act like I do. (laughs) That's unbelievable. We're like 35 minutes into this message. I get an amen on that. It's unbelievable. It's awesome. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Let me put it this way. What if Jesus would have come to us on our terms instead of understanding where we were? What if he would have said, you know, when you finally figure me out, I'll come and handle your business for you. When you figure out what I'm about, I'll finally come in and provide what you need. What's the problem with that? We never would have understood. So Philippians chapter 2 makes it quite plain. He humbled himself, leaving the glories of heaven, not grasping onto his need to, be, uh, to display his glory as God. He humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death on a cross. So what he did is exactly what Peter is asking husbands and wives to do for each other. Live with, yourself, with one another in an understanding way, not expecting them to meet you on your terms, but instead meeting them on their terms. The reason he's calling us to that is because that's what Jesus did for us. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin, primarily because Jesus understood the right thing to do and he did it. And one of the fundamental ways Christians can glorify Christ in their life is knowing the right thing to do and by the grace of God, getting it done. And not doing the sin of saying, that's not my deal but engaging with people in obedience, serving others, meeting the needs of others, humbling ourselves below others, sin by doing nothing, sin by saying nothing, sin by being passive. Okay, last verse, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians 6, verse 1, it's up on the screen if you want to follow along. It says, this, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's a fancy word for doing something naughty, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Okay, we're out of luck. Okay, (laughs) just do the best we can with what we got, okay? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is where we discover the nature of sin in the community of people. We're responsible for one another. Let's put it this way. There is sin in your life you've struggled with. And the plan God has for helping you overcome your sin is somebody's going to come in and speak the truth into your life. There's a challenge we face as a community of believers. Number one, none of us want to do that. Anybody want to do that? Nobody wants to do that. But the Bible calls us as believers to go into one another's life and say, hey, I don't know if you see this in you. And I want to I want to show you something that maybe you're missing in how your life is being lived. The other thing is nobody, none of us want anybody to do that. Has anybody, if you've ever had that occasion where somebody comes to you and says, hey, this is an area in your life where you're missing, what you do in that moment is you put on your defense attorney hat and you say, now it is time for me to explain to you how wrong you are. Because none of us enjoy being that. We are responsible for one another in love and in grace and humility to bear one another's burdens, to carry one another. And when we see something in one another's lives, to lovingly and graciously say, I don't know if you see what's going on in your life. Not to be those Israelites who go to our tent and say, I'm going to just pretend like nothing is happening. We go to our brother or sister in the Lord and say, hey, I just want to tell you what I see. And maybe God will use this in your heart and in your life to draw you closer to Christ. Just a couple of warnings on that. Number one, this comes out of relationship. Don't go up to somebody you've known five minutes and explain what their sin is. You, haven't, you don't have a relationship with them yet. Secondly, if you have a relationship with somebody and the only thing you're contributing is all of their sin, that's, you're missing it too. Don't be the person where every time you walk in the room, everybody scatters. Okay, here comes the exhorter. It's going to let everybody know what their sin is. We need to understand. It doesn't mean every conversation you have needs to explain to somebody how bad they are. It means by the Spirit's prompting. Notice what it says in Galatians there. You who restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That means out of love and grace and recognizing I have my own sin to contend with, to uh, tell somebody the truth about what maybe is going on in their life. Ruined because we walked away, ruined because the damage is permanent, and ruined because there is no escape. Of course, it would be depressing to end there, so just real quick. How do we escape? What is the way out? Number one, we've mentioned it before. Jesus alone pays the full price for our sin on the cross. Jesus alone pays the full price for our sin on the cross. Moses can't do it. You can't do it. Nobody else can do it. The only one who can receive on himself the full penalty for the damage you have done is Jesus himself. He is the only one who can receive the full price of our sin on the cross. Jesus alone is the mediator who can give us new life. He is alone is the one who has never sinned. He is alone is the one who be, can become sin for us. He is alone is the one who can bury that sin in the grave, rise from the dead and leave it there. So he can go up on the mountain for us. When Jesus goes up and stands before the Father for us, he doesn't say to us, perhaps I can make atonement for you. 
When Jesus does it, he says atonement is done. If I remember his words correctly on the cross, what was it? It is finished. Then he dropped the mic. I mean, he would have, but that's his way of saying, it is done. Devil, you're dead. Game over. Victory won. There's nothing left to accomplish in Christ. He took our sin, buried it, left it in the grave, rose from the dead and said, who wants to go to heaven? How do we escape in Christ alone? Look at the last verse of Exodus 32. We'll close with this. Exodus 32, 34. Second to last verse. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon him. The Bible talks about a particular day over and over and again, cover to cover. It talks about this day. It's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that great day when Jesus shows up and it is on. It's no more hiding, no more mystery, no more parable. Jesus shows up and says, I'm in charge. It's called the day of the Lord. It's a day of trouble for those who have rejected him. It's a day of great joy and celebration for those who are in him. The day of the Lord is coming. He will visit those who are in him, having acknowledged their sin and receiving his new life. On that day, we'll say, let's do this. Those who have decided on their own to say, I can handle my own business. The day of the Lord will be a day of great trouble because finally their sin will visit them in full. We need to recognize this as people and say, where am I? Am I looking forward to the day of the Lord because my sin is atoned for, because he buried my sin in the grave? Or if Jesus showed up today, I'm not sure how that conversation would go. What Moses is calling us to do is put our reliant faith on the one who buries our sin in the grave. Receive his forgiveness. Live connected to God. Some of us say, well... I mean, I get it. We're in church. But again, religious people are so constrained. There's all these, the air hose only goes so far. This is the problem we have that we have to wrestle with. For some reason, we assume whatever is out of reach of that air hose is better than what Jesus is providing us. Something we must do over time as we have relationship with God is realize Whatever we're reaching for that he says no to is actually not as good as what he's giving. We need to live our lives connected to God, let sin die, and live by the Spirit.